You're listening to the Formed Book Club from Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, we are with you now. Joseph Pierce from South Carolina, I believe. Uh, The reason I say I believe that, I'll explain in a moment. I'm here, Father Fester, from San Francisco. I do not have with me my trusty companion, Vivian Durdo. She's not feeling well. It is not the coronavirus. We think it's not the coronavirus, but she's at home resting. We hope to have her with us next week. Hope that I'm here next week, too, because we just got word that the mayor of San Francisco has put the city in a lockdown, and no one is supposed to leave his or her home uh, except for necessary activities. I haven't read the full statement yet, but I'm in our studio. If I go home, I may not be able to come back. But uh, tune in next week and see (laughs) if anybody's here. Uh, Because this is important. We're starting with... uh, this very important book, really, it's a wonderful book and an important book, From the Depths of Our Hearts by Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, and Robert Cardinal Seurat. And they've titled it intentionally, From the Depths of Our Hearts, because they've both spoken very intimately uh, and very forcefully and very movingly about a crisis in the church which has been ongoing and which began to come to a head uh, a few months ago prior to the Amazon Synod. So, Joseph, are we ready to go then on this book? I'm as ready as I'm going to be at this point, Father. Uh, I often say to people who come in, I'm totally unprepared. Uh, uh, the editor's note on this book, uh, I think we can, it's quite good, it's brief, by Nicola Dia, who basically gather the documents together and work with both Pope Benedict and Carlos Seurat to, to produce this book. I should say a few things, because there was some controversy when this book first came out, which was January 13th, uh, the French edition came out. On the 12th, it was leaked to Le Figaro, a French newspaper, and uh, immediately, the following Monday, the 13th, there was a twit- tweet that went out from an America correspondent in Rome, Corresponded in Rome saying, uh, Paul Benedict is not the co-author, story coming soon. And there was a huge amount of confusion about this. Uh, let me just say for everybody who's listening or watching this, uh, very briefly, what actually took place in the formation of this book. Both Carlos Seurat and Pope Benedict Emeritus, who are friends, who spend time together, were concerned by the upcoming, this was in August of 2019, Amazon Synod, which was taking place in October of 2019, uh, because of the media hype surrounding it, as if the church was going to make some major, major changes. So they uh, corresponded, they, they visited each other. Uh, Carlos Seurat had basically asked Pope Benedict if he would write something on the Catholic priesthood. This is in August. Well, Benedict said, you know, I'd already begun something, but I'm weary, I'm old, I kind of put it aside, but since you've asked me, uh, I will complete it. And so in September, uh, Pope Benedict uh, sent, with a covering letter, uh, his text on the priesthood to Carlos Seurat. Carlos saw it, Seurat saw it, and he said, well, this is quite, this is quite long. It's also very deep. It's much more than a newspaper article, or even a journal article, this should become part of a book. 
and so Carlos Serra proposed to Pope Benedict that he, Carlos Serra, would write a complimentary chapter and he'd make a book out of it. And Pope Benedict agreed. Then Carlos Serra drafted an introduction and a conclusion to this book written by both of them. And Pope Benedict read it and approved it, and that became the book. So is this book a co-authored book? Yes, it's a co-authored book. Uh, a very important chapter by Pope Benedict, another important chapter by Carlos Seurat, which is the main part of the book, and then a very short introduction and a short conclusion uh, in which they both speak, but it was drafted by Seurat and approved by Benedict. So that's that's the book. Uh, in fact, it, it, on with, we go to the introduction. Father. Yes, go ahead. Can, can I actually, it's, it, following our tradition, I know we like tradition here, um, I've actually got something before in the front matter, in the actual, Go ahead. the two epigraphs that open the book, one by uh, Pope Medus Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, and one by Cardinal Seurat, and I think they complement each other and say something about the two men and their and their approaches, so I thought maybe we yeah. could raise the curtain, as the book's curtain is raised, if you like, with these two epigraphs, perhaps we could do the same, would that be okay? Sure. Okay, so it's not actually a numbered page because it's in the front matter, just after the dedication page. But the, the top half of the page here is a quote from Joseph Ratzinger from the homily he gave just before he became Pope, in fact, in Basilica of St. Peter on April 18, 2005. And this is what it says. Today, having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism. Whereas relativism, that is, letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times. We are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's own ego and desires. So here we have you know, Ratzinger at his best, this sort of really clear analytical, philosophical mind, cutting through the cant of, of relativism as nothing but attitude and mood, um, and a dictatorship of attitude and mood, dictatorship of relativism. Um, so very incisive and objective. And then we have um, Cardinal Seurat. Uh, All activity must be preceded by an intense life of prayer, contemplation, seeking and listening to God's will. So we have, if you like, what a better way, better, better way of putting it, a subjective way. In other words, there's an objective reality, but we have to respond to that objective reality with, with contemplation, meditation, and prayer. And in this, these two halves, if you like, dovetail beautifully in the two approaches uh, of, uh, of uh, Pope Benedict and, and Cardinal Seurat. And that's reflected in the approaches in their chapters, because Cardinal, uh, excuse me, Pope Benedict's chapter is more theological and exegetical, uh, objective interpretation of scripture and what is the ontological status of the priesthood, whereas Carlos Seurat tends to be more pastoral and the, you know, the consequences of a, a celibate priesthood. Also, uh, I'll note one thing, this quote from Joseph Ratzinger is from April 18, 2005. That was the week before he was elected Pope, and when he made that speech as the head, or the, the dean of the College of Cardinals, uh, people thought, well, that that leaves, that ends his chance of being elected pope. But as a matter of fact, <laughs> uh, he was elected 
I won't, I won't say despite this, but perhaps because of his forthrightness and his clarity. Onward? Yeah, I also, if, if, if you'll bear with me, if you'll oh, indulge Lord. me, Father, because <laughs> I, you know, I don't have, once we get into the deep meat of, uh, of Pope Benedict's theology, you're going to have to carry me because I'm not a theologian. But on page 15, so I do, would like to try, to try to Nicola Diaz's uh, okay. uh, note. First of all, just I want to pluck out some some phrases. He's on page 15 here. When he talks about Benedict XVI and Cardinal Sarah, um, and what they're responding to, and responding to that you know, they don't want people to be intimidated by wrong-headed pleas, theatrical productions, diabolical lies, and fashionable errors. And I, I just love, I mean, this is a journalist at work here, but we've got, you know, um, uh, the, the full gamut, the full spectrum of the relative, the dictatorship the, 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 um, the relativism's response to orthodox here. Wrong-headed pleas, in other words, pleas based upon anything but reason. Right? Theatrical productions, another word for that might be spin, okay? Uh, just spinning something theatrically rather than actually getting to staying with the point. Diabolical lies, in other words, let's not beat about the bush here, the demonic. Um, and then fashionable errors, and then something, you know, whatever the, the spirit of the ages, the zeitgeist. Eh? And so just in sort of uh, three lines here, encapsulates the problem that Pope Benedict and uh, and Carlos are, are endeavouring to grapple with and and lead us beyond in this in this volume. Yes, and that's a quote from their conclusion, their joint conclusion. So those strong words are coming from them. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, sorry, I forgot that. Even better. And actually, the next page, Father, this is a quote from Pope Benedict from uh, the Mass on Pentecost on May 31st, 2009, and again, I think this is very good. Just as an atmospheric pollution exists that poisons the environment and living beings, thus a pollution of heart and spirit exists that mortifies and poisons spiritual life. So the idea of these errors actually being like a pollution that poisons our ability to reason and think um, properly and healthily. And this underlines an important point. Uh, it's a mistake to think this book is about priestly celibacy directed at Catholic priests. It is that, but it's much, much more than that. Uh, there's, a, there's a larger crisis of which this is a part, and an integral part, and this is something that really every Catholic should be aware of and engaged in. Uh, the introduction is titled, What Do You Fear? Question mark. Subtitle, Introduction by the Two Authors. Which is, by the way, approved by Pope Benedict and Carlos Seurat that this is how the chapter would be presented, the introduction, by the two authors. So they're the two authors of this book. Uh, I have something on uh, page 19, just to kind of echo what I said at the beginning here. Uh, the first full New, second paragraph there. In recent months, while the world was echoing with the din created by a strange media synod that overrode the real synod, we met together. So they were concerned by the way the media presents this thing. The similarity, I'm continuing, of our concerns and the convergence of our conclusions persuaded us 
to place the fruit of our work and of our spiritual friendship at the disposal of all the faithful, following the example of St. Augustine. And they say why Augustine did something similar. It's a very beautiful thing. These two great men of the church, they're, they're very close friends. They're very talented. Uh, they really know the church tradition, and they wanted to express themselves uh, to everyone. Get, let, us, let us all benefit from it. It's a very beautiful thing. That's all I have on the introduction. Do you have something, Joseph? Well, yeah, I have. That's just over from there, page 20. I did actually want to, to uh, reiterate, if you like, the quote that they used from St. Augustine of Hippo. Sure. Because what I want this to show is how, you know, we, we, we're always tempted to think that the crisis is happening in the church today yeah. is something new and it's never, been, never happened before. And, oh, my word, it's all over. All right. But in actual fact, the church has seen similar crises throughout its history, uh, and including the time of the great St. Augustine, well, 1500 years ago and more. Um, so um, I do want to quote this part from the top of page 20. This is St. Augustine speaking, but it could be Cardinal Soir, Pope Benedict. That's the point. After all, I do not plan to pass my time in the vanity of ecclesiastical honors. Rather, I bear in mind that I will give an account to the prince of all pastors, i.e. Jesus Christ, about the sheep entrusted to me. I cannot be silent and pretend nothing is wrong. I know. If you had known that, that was a quote from Augustine, would you be able to place it in any particular century? No. Right. It's completely contemporary. In actual fact, if we'd changed I to we there and taken away the quote marks, you could have believed it was written by Cardinal Saran Pope Benedict. Absolutely. All right. And also, if I could say that, I know you've got further on here, but um, I, I'd have my say here because I don't have an awful lot when we get into the really deep stuff because okay. yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to let you keep me afloat. Right. Okay. But um, we were talking the same page, love for the church's unity. And then another, you know, the, an epigram I love here. Ideology divides, truth unites hearts. This idea that the truth always unites because it's intrinsically real, intrinsically true, it comes from God, whereas ideology divides. These are political uh, or philosophical notions that, that men have, and we can look at the millions of people being killed by ideologies in the last two or three hundred years and compare it with the truth itself. Um, and then again, same page, the search for truth can be made only by opening the heart. And again, I, I, one of my favorite pastors, the Suman, I'm not a tome, well, I am a Thomist, but I'm an ignorant one. <laughs> um, but you know, again, that, that St. Thomas tells us in the Summa that basically perception begins with humility. And it's humility that opens the heart and the mind to wonder, at least to, to contemplation. The search for truth can be made only by opening the heart. Without humility, we have no hope of getting anywhere near the truth. And after that, Father, I'm happy to hand over to you. All right, I can't gainsay that. So now we come uh, to cover the first chapter of this book called The Catholic Priesthood, we been at the 16th. And there's so much in there. But let's begin at the beginning here on page 25. Uh, this is typical Benedict Ratzinger. He begins this chapter, his essay, if you will, on this priesthood. Given the lasting crisis that the priesthood has been going through for many years, it seemed to be necessary to get to the deep roots of the problem. His technical 
specialty was fundamental theology, getting to the foundations, getting down to the, the lower levels, everything rests upon. And again, he does that. And if you think about it, oh, what could the root of this crisis be? I mean, if you ask me or anybody else, you guess what you might want to say? I don't think any of us would get it. Because what did he say? At the foundation of the serious situation in which the priesthood finds itself today, we find what? A methodological flaw in the reception of Scripture as Word of God. What? A problem in method? You know, some, kind of a scholarly thing or something? Oh, by the way, uh, you're probably hearing something which I'm not hearing not in Joseph either. This is a demo version of this uh, software here. And we, it's a long story, but we'll be off the demo next week. And I think there's a woman in the background saying this is a demo version. So just ignore her. You know, We're going to pay our bills. <laughs> Do this right. So uh, he says, the abandonment of the Christological interpretation of the Old Testament led many contemporary exegetes to a deficient theology of worship. Of worship. So that's why this book is central, not just about the priesthood, it's about worship. And he's saying that the deep root is a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. This chapter will go into what that error was and what the correction is. And that's why I recommend you read this very, very carefully. Uh, that was page 25. I have something on page 28. You have something before that, Joseph? No, I don't. It's all yours. Well, but just as kind of a preview or an overview for those who've read this already, uh, what he's saying is that the Old Testament is not just a law which is superseded by Christ. The Old Testament is a preparation for Christ which he fulfills. And therefore, even though Jesus and his disciples were not Jewish priests, because they were not born of the tribe of Levi, and all Jewish priests had to be born of the tribe of Levi, that doesn't mean that Jesus and the apostles now made a break with the idea of priesthood, but rather they fulfill the idea of priesthood. And we'll see that further in this chapter as Pope Benedict interprets some important passages of the Old Testament. So on page 28, uh, he's talking about the development of the ministry of the church. And he says, from very early on, the church composed of Jews and Gentiles showed the development of the threefold form of ministry composed of bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay, so that's what we have in the church today. Clerics are bishops, priests, and deacons. And there's a lot of pleasure being brought to bear to see, well, we, could, we should be able to ordain women as deaconesses because they're not priests or bishops, right? Ratzinger here says, We find it already clearly mentioned by Ignatius of Antioch in the late first century. To this day, it has expressed appropriately the ministerial structure of the Church of Jesus Christ, both terminologically and ontologically. That's one very important word. Benedict is saying here that that threefold structure of the clerical state, bishop, priest, and deacon, 
is something ontological. It's not just functional. And therefore, deacons are part of the ordained ministry, just as priests and bishops. Very important point. I see you're shaking, you're, you're, you're nodding. That's good, Joseph. I love, I love when you nod your head like that. Okay. <laughs> Here's an interesting, I, I, I'm skipping a lot because he writes so clearly. And just mentioning a few things which stand out as kind of almost shocking phrases. Bottom of page 32, he says, the crucifixion of Jesus is not in itself a cultic act. The Roman soldiers who execute him are not priests. I mean, what do you mean? The crucifixion wasn't, wasn't a cultic act? He points out some very obvious. No, it wasn't. There were Roman soldiers putting him into death. That's what they did. But he continues. At the Last Supper, the fact that Jesus gives himself forever as food during the Last Supper signifies the anticipation of his death and resurrection. This signifies the transformation of an act of human cruelty, which was not an act of worship, into an act of love and self-giving. So that it is Jesus, so it is that Jesus, so it is that Jesus accomplishes the fundamental renewal of worship that will forever remain valid and obligatory. So in itself, historically, by those soldiers, it wasn't an act of worship. But at the Last Supper, Jesus prepares for it and shows that by his accepting it voluntarily, he makes it a cultic act. An act of what he transforms it to a cultic act. Very important point. I think immediately just before that, literally the sentence before where you began with the crucifixion of Jesus, not itself a cultic act. I actually highlighted the short sentence there. Okay. Without the resurrection, all this would have no meaning. So basically, it's who Christ is as the living and resurrected God that makes sense of all of this. If we forget that axiomatic fundamental reality the rest of its nonsense anyway so that we have to have that supernatural understanding of things at the center of everything because and i think that's the problem with a certain type of theologian right they they they're, they're too busy quibbling about minutiae that they actually lose sight of the big picture yes going on page 34 uh the christian ministry uh middle of the page the Christian ministries, episkopos, presbyteros, diakonos, that's bishop, priest, and deacon, and those who were regulated by the Mosaic law, high priests, priests, Levites, from now on stand openly side by side. Wirecast. Dot, dot, dot. Indeed, the terminological equivalence comes about rather quickly. Episcopos designates the high priest, so the bishop is the high priest. Presbyteros, priest, the, the Jewish priest. Diakonos, the Levite, a member of the priestly people. And so you see how Ratzinger here so, sees so clearly and, and describes how the New Testament ministry is the perfect reflection of the Old Testament ministry, but it's been transformed by Christ. So it's not just something new. It's not just a break with the past. It's an elevation. It's a transfiguration, a purification, an intensification, if you will, of preparation in the Old Testament. Very On the next page, Father, maybe you can you can enlighten or elaborate my inarticulate thoughts I'm going to endeavor to express here. Okay. Um, you know, we, we, he talks here about allegory, but he talks about allegory in a, in, a, in a different sense. So 
just middle of the next page, 35. This Christological pneumatological interpretation was described as allegorical from historical literary perspective. But it is obvious that we must read, that is discern, in it the reason for the profound novelty of the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. Here, allegory is not a literary means of making the text applicable to new purposes. It is the expression of a historical transition that corresponds to the internal logic of the text. I'm going to try to um, uh, explain that in my own words to my own satisfaction, and you can please correct me if I'm off track. Okay. So obviously, I, I, I'm someone who studies literature, and generally speaking, you talk about an allegorical dimension to a literary text. It's a meaning that comes out of the text and is applicable to to the wider world. So you're reading a literary text, a story or a poem, and then it, it applies to the world beyond the story or the poem. But here, what I, I think, if I understand uh, uh, Pope Benedict correctly, he's saying that but here the allegorical connection is within the text, in the sense that what's happening in the Old Testament points beyond itself to its fulfillment in the Gospel and the New Testament in the person of, of Christ, which would also, of course, apply to the Christian ministries you've been talking about. So it's not something which has an applicability, although I may have that as well, outside of the text, but actually within the text itself. Yes, and even more, not just within the text, but within the persons the text is referring to. So that, for example, in Pilgrim's Progress, you have Maul the Giant, M-A-U-L. Why, why is he called Maul the Giant? Because he destroys Christian doctrine and so on. So there's no real person there. He, he stands for, it's, it's an idea, you know, who's personified, so to speak. But Moses isn't just an idea, you know, that somehow points to Christ. Moses is a living person who is fulfilled by Christ being the new Moses. So when, when you say Christ the new Moses, that's not allegorical use of a text, literarily speaking. It's ontological use of persons that they really do refer to each other in more than just that the text actually is referring to a, a real relationship between the, the parties. Could, could we see Christ then? We obviously see Christ as the perfect human person, but can we see Christ as the perfect Moses? In other words, the one yes. who makes the sense of who Moses is. Absolutely. In fact, Jesus will say, you know, you've heard this and that. I'm telling you, a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Solomon, but he's the new Solomon, greater than. And this is, I mean, this is an enormous, people don't realize this, I think, now because it's become part of our theological culture, but this idea of the relationship of the Old Testament to the New, uh, Christological interpretation, not allegorical interpretation of text, but real versus real events prefiguring their fulfillment later on in history, that really became uh, an emphasis of Henri de Lubac, Jean Balthasar, and with them, Joseph Ratzinger, to bring back this idea the Old Testament is not a dead book. It's not just for the Jewish people, it's for us. Uh, and that's why he calls this a Christological and pneumatological, meaning Pneuma is Holy Spirit, interpretation of the Old Testament. And on page 37, I won't go into the 
quoting it here, but he says, this is what Luther's, one of Luther's problems was it because Luther rejected the old law as the dead law that, you know, kills, the new law in the spirit, he rejected the Old Testament priesthood and thought that the Catholic ministries were just a repetition of or a continuation of the old law. He did not see the Christological, pneumatological interpretation. And Bill Ratzinger said, basically, this lies at the root of the whole Protestant Reformation, a misunderstanding of Scripture, which is kind of ironic when you, when you think sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Ha <laughs> but if you see Scripture for what it really is, as the Catholic Church sees it, it, it has a much deeper meaning. I just have one more thing uh, before we get to the, I want to quote page 41. Uh, this again, this is I have nothing else to 45 after that. So, okay. but, um, it, middle of the page, it is true that me, meditation on the word of God is an important and fundamental task of the priest of God in the new covenant. Even so, this word was made flesh. To meditate on it always means also to be nourished by the flesh that is given to us in the most holy Eucharist as bread from heaven. To meditate on the word in the church of the new covenant always amounts to abandoning oneself to the flesh of Jesus Christ. I love, I just love that as a way of embodying and encapsulating the incarnational dimension of, of theology and the fact that we, we can't just see the words of scripture as words, lowercase w, because the words of the gospel are word, as in logos, as in uppercase w, as in the, the, the flesh of Jesus Christ. And I, and I just love the way that just in what, eight lines uh, that Ratzinger manages to encapsulate that. He, yes, he's, he's a genius at that. I want to just point out something which is a, it's part of the, it's argument part of the text, but it's just a, uh, it kind of stands out in a certain way. Bottom of page 41. From the daily celebration of the Eucharist, which implies a permanent state of service to God, was born spontaneously the possibility of a matrimonial bond. We can say that the sexual abstinence that was functional was transformed automatically into an ontological abstinence. Here again, you use that word ontological. Uh, in the Old Testament, priests would serve at the altar every so often, maybe once a week, or even sometimes every, uh, they have months between their service in the temple. And so they were married, and they'd have marital relations. And then when they came into the temple for the day or for the week, whatever it was they served, they would abstain from sexual relations. Well, what Ratzinger is saying here, Benedict, is that, well, once we had Mass every day, uh, sexual absence that was functional, the Old Testament, was transformed automatically into an ontological absence. Now, now this has a, a connection to the very essence of the priesthood, that the priest is devoted totally to God. And now he, he, will, he will develop this in exegesis of three texts, which I'm not going to go into in great detail, but... The three texts are Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, which is the Lord is my portion and my cup. He's my inheritance. Deuteronomy 10 and 18, uh, the priest of those who stand before the Lord and serve the Lord. And then John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer. He's consecrated them in the truth. All three of these texts 
illustrate how the priesthood of Christ is a priesthood of total self-giving for him and the church, which exclude any possibility of some other uh, total self-giving, which marriage is meant to be. And the way he, I mean, his interpretation of these things is so moving and beautiful. And two of them are texts which he remembers from his ordination. They were read either for his tonsure or his ordination. And he says, I've lived my whole life with these texts. So, for example, uh, in Psalm 16:5, it's the Levite priest who says, the Lord is my portion, my cup. He's my inheritance because they didn't have any land. What was, it, what was their share of the Jewish people? Huh, no land. But it was the Lord. And they served the Lord. And to stand before the Lord, they were the ones who had to be upright and resist the trends of the times. I mean, all these things are in there. It's just beautiful. Great. But uh, I think that's people watching and listening. I, I hope you read this before you watch or listen, but if you haven't, please read this, and then uh, if you read it, read it, read it again. This is this is powerful, powerful writing. So for next week, let's take about half of chapter two, wherever that falls. I'm not sure. Or Joseph, do you have another idea? Well, I was just going to suggest, as we've got basically about 50 pages in, that maybe we could carry on that sort of pacing. Uh, I did notice page 99, there's a subheading in the middle of it. Maybe we could walk up, read up to that. Good. That's okay. there on page 99, so about 50 pages a, a session. Does that sound good? That sounds good. So, uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope to have Vivian with you next week, and myself as well, if I'm not locked down in my house somewhere. So, God bless you all. To receive email updates, study questions, and free access to our online forum, just visit formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Thanks for joining us.